done a long, oh, this is nice and warm. We've done a long series, right? You did four parts. This is part three. We've looked at the historical account and now the, the uh, internal evidence. This is very interesting. Internal evidence of the uh, scriptures, as the uh, the holy scriptures inspired. Right. Last time we finished. Where were we? I think. Yes. We had completed. Uh, transmission, I think. We had looked at... Remember? Who remembers? Young people, how is your memory? Are you managing to pay attention? I know this is the age of Twitter, 140 characters long, and so attention spans are short, but you young people have an advantage. You're much used to that. I remember reading about... Um, Political speeches a hundred years ago in Canada would be two, four, and six hours long. No television, no radio. People would go and listen to a politician make a speech for two, four, and six hours in length. What could be more boring than listening to a politician speak for six hours? <laughs> but on a Sunday afternoon after lunch, on a sunny day, when the light's streaming in, it'd be easy for your mind to wander. What are the three issues with respect to the Bible? Remember, there are three words and they all end in shun. The first is, who wants to try? Looking at the... What's that? Inspiration. Excellent. Thank you for that. Inspiration. And inspiration is what? I don't need a fancy theological definition. Essentially, what happens at the point of inspiration with respect to the Scriptures? Yeah, so what does that mean in, in terms of human experience? What's happening when the scriptures are inspired? They're, yeah, yeah, they're being given. They're, a, they're coming into readable form, right? They, they first were spoken, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and they wrote him down. Jeremiah was to write his prophecies, and this is when the scriptures came into being. So they were inspired. That's the first giving. Not first generation. Now, to get it down to the next generation and the next and the next, that process of copying and so on, what's that called? Who? That's another shun word. Yeah, that word is also used in cars, just as a hint. Transmission, right? That's transmitting. So it's inspired. Here it is on, word, on earth, and now it needs to be transmitted from one generation to the next. And then to fulfill Christ's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, the scriptures, what happens to the scriptures? They need to be what? And we have been looking at this from the point of, and Sean gave us a historical perspective, how we come to have our English Bible, which covered inspiration, transmission, and translation, right? It was given to Moses and and the writing, the collating, and the canon uh, under Ezra of the Old Testament. 
and then the translation into Septuagint, and then the New Testament scriptures, and their translations throughout, right down through Wycliffe and Tyndale and our, our King James Bible. Right? So we've had that from the historical view. Now we're looking at the internal evidence, what the Bible says. And one of the ways we're looking at it is in context of, is this scripture inspired of God? Or is it our best efforts to kind of cobble something together after it's been abused over the, you know, and lost and so on. And we've been looking at what is a biblical approach. And we've considered a few of the laws of textual criticism that men have devised to help them analyze texts. And I get it. I get why they would do it and why they would feel it's necessary so you can be objective. But we've looked at some of those things as unbiblical. For example... When you're looking at a manuscript, two manuscripts, and they differ, right? They're not exactly the same. How do you know which one's authentic? And they have the list of rules. And one of them, one of the rules is when you read a manuscript, you cannot assume that the person copying it was helped by the Holy Spirit or influenced by Satan. There's no spiritual influence in his life. That's one of the rules of textual criticism. And I would submit, as we've looked at, that that is unbiblical. Um, another assumption is that there's no inspiration for a copy or a translation. Those are considered Christian belief. And we've been looking at the scriptures and what the scriptures have to say about that. The shorter reading is the original version because the scribes are always trying to clarify and add explanatory notes. These are all ideas that exist. And what we've been looking at is the fact that they don't actually align with what the Bible says. Jeremiah, as you remember, when the, the word had been burned in the fire, the Lord reissued, so much for only the original autographs, and added many other words. Adam, the first prophet, we saw that God gave the word first to Adam. Adam transmitted it to Eve and added words so that Eve told her, don't even touch the tree. And that became... God's commandment to her, and so on. So, we've been examining some of the assumptions that men make to say that the Bible's not really the Bible, in the light of what they agree are historically accurate texts, to find out that those assumptions actually are not biblical. That we, and where we're going is that you can have complete confidence in the book in your hand. So we've looked at um, inspiration from a biblical point of view. We've looked at transmission. Remember the king was to make a what of the law? Who remembers? Matthew? Copy. Teacher's son better be, have the right answer. You know? Otherwise it justifies everyone for getting it wrong. Yeah. Your own son doesn't listen to you. Why should we? You know? So there it is. Uh, copies, right? Copies were considered... Um, Inspired, They were treated as if they were the very word of God. And in fact, probably the crescendo of this idea would be Peter's statement that it was revealed to the prophets that they ministered not to themselves, but, and he says, to us, the church, 600 years later. And so, if God is inspiring his word... Today, four people 600 years later, knowing that they're not getting the original autographs, but copies of copies of copies. It seems to me ridiculous to assume 
that they were subject to error and weren't inspired by the time he got to them. The person of all people for whom the scriptures were written would be who? Hint, really, really famous person. Even unbelievers know who he is. First name begins with J. Who wants to hazard a guess? Philip? Who's the most famous person in history whose first name begins with J? Go for it. Yes, you got it. Jesus. The scriptures written for Jesus to read. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. How could we believe anything other than that the scriptures he were reading, he was reading at the time, were exactly the inspired word of God? Isn't that the most reasonable belief? Rather than it was pretty good, but you know, those are the rules. Can't be inspired. And so I trust we have uh, sufficiently proven from the scriptures that not only were the originals inspired, the inspiration process, but transmission was inspired. If Caiaphas, or was it Annas, could prophesy, being the high priest, that one man must die for the nation, a wicked man with murder in his heart was moved upon by the Holy Ghost to prophesy, how much more? Would um, various scribes and, ever, and whoever they are while they're handling the word of God be moved upon by the Holy Ghost to copy what God wanted copy, to collate what God wanted collated and to distribute throughout the synagogues for Messiah to read. Translation now we come to. What is God's will for his word to go into other languages and would he help? That's the question. Translation, right? So we've done inspiration, transmission, translation. What is God's will for his word to go into other languages? Right? What's his will concerning his scriptures going into other languages? That's one question. Two, would he help? Right? So is it God's will for the scriptures to be translated? And would he help with that process? This is a reasonable question. I remember years ago when the internet was new, I think I've said this before, black screen, tab key, typing, you know, no images. I mean, those that were trendy could get images, but some of us, you know, you just see a little thing in brackets says image because you're still on a black screen. You're not getting an image. Um, and religious debate and Bible, Bible translation debate forums and all these. And you've got Christian people and atheists debating the... Bible and people talking about a mystical view of Bible translation and, and uh, translations are not inspired and all of that. And, and I'm just thinking to myself, says who? Like, where do you get the authority to say that? You know, a mystical view of Bible translation. Is that somehow different from a mystical view of inspiration? <laughs> I mean, and it's just, we were talking about this with uh, End Times earlier, right? People just don't think. We, we just kind of roll with something. All of us, we're like that, right? We do things, we don't roll with it. Let's look at some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14.21. I want to do better at getting us engaged. So, how many of you completely and fully and willfully object and refuse to be volunteered 
to participate. They'd have to volunteer that information. Well, they would at least respond. So, you see how I've tricked you now? By refusing to stand up and say, I refuse to volunteer, you have agreed to volunteer. <laughs> see, isn't that clever? So, so now we've got everybody willing to participate. That is great. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21. I need a volunteer to stand up and read that. Philip, okay. Uh, teacher's son willing to do the distance there. Go for it, son. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21. You're going to have to yell so we can all hear you. Yeah, well, those that can't hear have their own Bibles. They can read along and fill in the gaps. Go for it. Well, it's in his Bible as well. <laughs> this is where that song comes in, right? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. All right, <laughs> Luke, John, Acts. Huh? Then Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians. Chapter fourteen, verse twenty-one of First Corinthians. Just the one verse. Yes, good and loud, strong voice. Orator. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that, yet for all that will they yet for all that will they No, and yet for all that Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, well, good anyway. We can always do better. In the Lord's written, right? With men of other tongues. So, right there we're seeing a passage. Now the apostle is quoting from Isaiah 28, I believe. Yes. Um, now, and this, this actually... Is, this is a, we get double duty out of this little exercise. Who wants to read Isaiah 28, verse 11 and uh, 12? Who's going to stand up? Want to try it, Tyler? Oh, someone will be happy to lend you a Bible. Everyone's so helpful. Look at that. There's Philip. <laughs> you can thank him later. He's even found a place for you. What a, what a friend. Yes. Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. Thank you. Excellent. That was well read. And it would have been fine if you'd have stammered, because he would have really caught the point there, right? So, all right, for with stammering lips and another tongue. Now, we're getting a double lesson in this one. How many of you noticed that it's put differently? Yes. So, what's happened is you've gone in Isaiah 28 from Hebrew into English, and in 1 Corinthians 14, you've got the apostle quoting, and he might quote loosely, and he's going from Hebrew to Greek. And they've translated it from Greek into English. 
I remember as a youth working in a cabinet shop when uh, computer translations and so on were a new thing. And one man with whom I was working, we were talking at lunch, and he was talking, I think, going from Chinese, or is it Japanese, I forget. So he went from English to either Chinese or Japanese. I know they're quite different, but they're similar. Back into English, right? So you take a phrase or a sentence, you go from English to We'll call it Chinese, and then from Chinese back into English. And it was that famous saying, I think, of the three monkeys, you know, uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You all familiar with that little saying? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You'll see it on coffee mugs and T-shirts and so on. You've got three monkeys, you know, like this and like this. And, and it came back, invisible idiot. Right? So it <laughs> went through the language translator from English, see no evil, uh, hear no evil, speak no evil, into Chinese, and then from Chinese back to English, and the English was invisible idiot. Um, so I guess somehow the, the verb and the tenses and all that got a bit mixed up in the computer program, but it illustrates the challenge of translation, right? Here, all you see is the difference. Um, it's like uh, the name Jesus, right? So Jesus is from Hebrew to, to Greek to English. And Joshua is from Hebrew to English. And you see that in the, in the Bible all the time. And so what we have, if Paul's quoting the Greek Bible of his day, then the Spirit of God inspired Paul to translate Isaiah from Hebrew into Greek. You've got inspired translation. We could just end our little study right with that one point. People that believe that the apostles quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek uh, Old Testament of the day, are then acknowledging that the Spirit of God affirmed a translation and inspired it to be quoted as the Word of God. And so this is a clue right out of the gate that God is actually for translation and He inspires it. At least He did. Why would we think He's abandoned the project? And here we have also revealed in his word, in the law. So this is another thing. This helps us with biblical interpretation. Is Isaiah part of the law? Hint, no. Well, the law is Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So sometimes Paul refers to, as the other apostles, as the Jews did, the whole Bible as the law which would technically be the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. Sometimes they just call it all the law. So when Paul writes, you know, a woman's to be under obedience, as also saith the law, he just means that is the overall message of the Bible, that God didn't give it to women to be burdened with ruling. He's not quoting a specific passage from Moses. So there's lots of understanding we get by paying attention to details. But what we're seeing in this passage, God is going to speak His word to Israel through a different language, right? With stammering lips and another tongue. So inarticulate and a different language from the language of their scriptures. He was going to speak to His people. So they're going to be inarticulate and in a foreign language. God was going to speak His word in a different language than the scripture language. That's revealed in the scriptures. 
Acts chapter 2. I'm thinking the verses I want are, I've got them in a different order. I'm thinking, yes, I'm going to think it's verses 4, 11, and 17. Jonathan, you willing to read Acts chapter 2, verses 4? Verse 4, yeah. Ah, uh, sure. Well, we can keep you going. We can go with four. Yeah, four, eleven, and seventeen. Read those three verses, please. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Just breaking in now. I, I, yeah, you kind of go into. Yeah. Go ahead. Verse eleven. Verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, shall dream dreams. Thank you. Okay, so, you know, the, the passage he read in verse 11 was, a long, was the end of a list. Parthians, Medes, Mesopotamia, Egypt, right? We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Different languages, right? Verse 17 tells us what? What were they doing? Based on verse 17. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall recite poetry. What were they doing? Prophesying. They're prophesying. What is prophecy? It's inspired word of God. So they're speaking inspired word of God in other languages. And this is what, um, look at uh, verse 4. They began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God in other languages. This is exactly what Isaiah had prophesied would happen. So, right, when the church was born, the Word of God went forth in different languages. And the fact that they were speaking the wonderful works of God, which we've referenced before, refers to the psalm. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his wonderful works of children men. It's essentially spirit-inspired translation on the first day of the church being filled with the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> Every nation under heaven, right? Um, look at verse 5. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. That's a lot. So we have the inspired word of God coming in all of these different languages representing every nation under heaven. I would submit to anyone that this reveals the will of God concerning his word of which the Bible is a written record. Is that God's will is for his holy word to go into and to be spoken in every language. And what greater um, authority than the holy scriptures themselves. Everything else being subject to question. 
So that was the conclusion there. Every nation under heaven. God's will. He's promised already he's going to speak his word. If God's speaking, uh, every nation. Now, here's a question. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. If, if that's God's will, and he starts by inspiring his people to, prof- to speak with tongues and prophesy in different languages. And assuming um, the language there, the wonderful works of God from Psalm 7, at least some of those phrases would have been scripture. We are seeing scripture spoken in every language, all equally the word of God. No sense of, hey, let's go back to the Hebrew to check for the original rendering. Here's our question now. May we not reasonably look for God to do this for our language and make diligent search to know if this has been done by faith? If it's revealed that the word of God's going to go into every language, should we not? Now, I'm backtracking. We already have an English Bible. But would this not be a reasonable thing? Has God given his word in our language? A uh, question that I've already mentioned. If the apostles quoted from the Septuagint, the LXX, as is commonly believed, then that would be a first demonstration of translation from the original Hebrew into a heathen tongue. And it was treated by the apostles as if it was the very word of God. Look at a couple of other points. At the time of the apostles, there was one principal version for the global languages of Jew and Gentile. Is that right? There's one Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures scattered throughout the Septuagint. One. Greek was the international language. <clears throat> it was pre-existing. The Romans conquered, right? The Romans took over from Alexander. Isn't that right? so, so we had the um, Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, and his son was Estardon, and then Belshazzar kind of ruined the whole thing. Belshazzar, Belshazzar was wiped out. I think it was um, uh, Cyrus was the general. See? Darius and Cyrus. And they, they flipped. You had Darius the Mede, then you had Darius the Persian. We got the order wrong? And you had Cyrus, who... Um, so you had the Medo-Persian Empire that took over. And then we had um, uh, Alexander the Great. And then the Romans succeeded. These are Daniel's vision and his dream. It was all unfolded in the centuries afterwards. So the Romans now. But Alexander, he represents, I think, the leopard beast. The fastest moving military conquest of the pre-industrial world. Right? They're just using feet, horses, chariots. And I think Alexander, he was a ferocious man. I think the, the island of Tyre. Tyre had, was a dual city on land and in sea. And the the people of Tyre mocked Alexander. You're not coming here. He was so enraged that he he, he, um, threw the land into the sea. Like he had his army. They built a bridge right out to the island and and conquered it and destroyed it. He was a ferocious man. And fast, the fastest spreading military conquest of the um, pre-industrialized world. I think so. um, maybe the cannon warfare may have been faster, but for, for um, over a thousand years. The leopard, fast, fast moving. 
And so when the Romans conquered, they maintained the Greek language. The Greek language was, so the Romans were Latin speaking, but they still had Greek as the universal language. That was the language of the world, was Greek. That was a common touch point, right? So you have two, you know, the Parthians and the Medes and so on, but they both speak Greek and that's how they could communicate. Like English today, the world, right? A French person and a Syrian person will most likely, if they can communicate with each other, most likely they're going to speak English to each other. That's how it would work. Because English is pretty well the international language. One principal version, um, and that's how it seems, is that each language that gets the Bible gets one principal version for it. That's how it would seem. That was true in Hebrew. You had Targums, you had different modern updates, but you had the one ancient Hebrew text in the temple. You had the um, <clears throat> Septuagint scattered throughout the Greek-speaking world. So we're looking at the issue of translation. Take a guess. What language did Jesus speak? Probably not Swahili, I'm just saying. Right? Hebrew, the Hebrew tongue. Right? Some want to say Aramaic and, and so on. But uh, I would suggest... Pretty likely not Latin. Possibly he would have been functional in Greek for commerce with Romans and so on. <clears throat> but um, in what, what was the accusation? This is not trivial. This is important to pay attention to detail. What was the accusation that was written over Jesus' head, nailed on the cross above his head? What was his accusation? This is Jesus Who knows? Nathan, you with us? King of the Jews. In what language was that accusation written? Right. What were they? Hebrew, Greek, Latin. Now, here's what I want to know. If everybody spoke Greek, why would you put it in Hebrew or Latin? Even in Toronto, you know, there's places in Toronto, um, Chinatown. You got street signs in Chinese in Toronto. Did you know? I mean, I don't know if they're still like that. I haven't been for a while. Chinatown used to go there. Street signs in Chinese characters in Toronto. In schools, we we used to have. Uh, we, we still do. You have translators. You know, you need people to communicate with parents. Um, it would be clear that at least some of the Jews did not speak Greek or Latin. We don't know if the Lord Jesus was speaking Greek to Pontius Pilate, if Pilate had learned Hebrew as a procurator, or if they spoke through a translator. Scripture doesn't tell us. We can only make our various assumptions, our best guesses. But what language? There are, um, I think, two occasions that the language which Jesus is speaking is told in the Scriptures. And in what language are we told he's speaking on those occasions? One or two? No, it doesn't tell you what language, it just gives you the phrase. But I'll give you a hint. He was speaking to Paul, the apostle from heaven. And Paul's telling you, the Hebrew tongue. The only time the scriptures tell us the language Jesus was speaking, it was Hebrew. Let's speculate, let's reason together. The Lord Jesus is walking with Peter by the Sea of Galilee. And they're talking. 
Jesus and Peter, what language would they most likely have spoken to each other? Portuguese. <laughs> you know, that is a really good guess. I, I, isn't it Adam Mobishu or something like that? God speaks German. I know that. But, but second likely, and then the second most likely, what do you think? Hebrew. Hebrew. That would be mine. Isn't that the most reasonable? Isn't that the most reasonable? That they're speaking in Hebrew so that the Gospels themselves, written in Greek, are translations. This is deduction, right? Come now, let us reason together. This, isn't this what Jesus did with the Pharisees? Whose son is Christ? They say, the son of David. He said, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord... Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David call him Lord, how is he then his son? It's deduction, deductive reasoning. And so if we deduce that the Lord Jesus was speaking Hebrew and the apostles wrote those conversations in Greek and sent it to the Gentile world, is that not, and if the first autographs were inspired, is that not Holy Spirit inspired translation? Because what Jesus spoke was literally the word of God. Is that not? The discourses in the gospel of John. It's Jesus speaking the word of God. And John inspired by the Holy Spirit to translate that Aramaic discourse. Or Hebrew. That's the Hebrew tongue. Into Greek. Now I would submit that the scriptures demonstrate A, that it is the will of God for his word to go into other languages. And B, that he inspired translation of his word. I think that is unarguable evidence of history and the scriptures. And I would then pose this question. By what basis would we say that God is no longer interested in inspiring translation? Does the translator have to know he's being inspired? Does he have to feel inspired? And where would you get that notion from Scripture? Holy men of God felt like they were being inspired. Everyone who didn't feel like he was being inspired wasn't being inspired. Where would we get such notions? Did Caiaphas feel inspired while he was plotting Jesus' murder? And the Spirit of God prophesied through a murderous clergyman. What we see is that God is willing to use wicked clergymen to speak his word. And I would submit that he used some pretty ordinary scribes in the transmission process. And he inspired some godly and some ungodly scribes to copy and copy and copy and organize the scrolls from which Messiah, the Gospels, right, spoken in Hebrew and translated into Greek and... um, God using sinful clergy to inspired one. Brethren, do, do you see what we're doing? We're looking at the scriptures. Where are we going? Well, we're, we're headed for English. Because remember that uh, staff Christian lady uh, disputing with me about something or other years ago. and said, The King James isn't the Bible, Martin. You know, Tyndale graduate. <laughs> well, today I would say uh, actually it is. It is. It's the word of God. Sean's walked us through this, so I don't need to. You know, the Old Testament canon. Uh, Cain, right? Measuring rod. That's where it comes from. The word canon. Yes, not C-A-I-N. 
Yes, no, C-A-N-E, the rod, the measuring rod, not kaboom, right, the big, it's a measuring. Um, and we, Sean walked us through this, written on stone, written in a book, made into copies, um, and they were even added to over the years, Joshua and so on. Uh, Paul, uh, Sean walked us through it, prophets prophesying over the course, the books found their way into the temple, organized by priests, um, Jewish belief is that Ezra oversaw it all at the end. With the Babylonian captivity, scriptures were scattered, many copies destroyed. Ezra reassembled scattered copies and restored them as a group. And um, possibly editing and inserting comments, you know, to this day, for example, written after as part of the process. Am I on point, uh, Sean? Just help me if I go wrong there. Yes, sir. Um, it depends on who you talk to. So linguistic scholars would say no, but the differences are subtle, right? To a linguist, it's, it's all, um, they've never been able to get a full handle on it. I think that's similar. What's that? Yes, they are that similar. The Semitic languages are similar, Arabic, Syrian like, they're all very similar, and they all re require these diacritical marks. Now, when I say similar, like, I don't mean identical, right? Uh, Arabic was a simpler language, but um, I think it has to do with a matter of time. I think there was more of a Syriac influence on the Hebrew. You know, it says, it says the Hebrew tongue, um, the tongue that was the language that the Hebrews spoke. So... Um, No, no, Aramaic and Arabic are not the same language. Um, so it's one of those things that uh, linguistic scholars make their distinctions. Are we talking in the actual writing of it, or are we talking about the speech? Uh, both, I think, the dialect and the... But uh, my understanding is that that was the language of the Jews. It would be the Hebrew tongue. So scholars today retroactively are calling it Aramaic. I'm not aware that they called it Aramaic at the time of the Lord. So it's a scholarly term. I don't know enough to really make a comment on it. But it's not different. They, what they're saying is that the Hebrew language that the Lord Jesus spoke is what these scholars call Aramaic. It's not a separate language. And I think what they're trying to say is it wasn't the Hebrew that Moses spoke. In other words, the language had... Uh, morphed over the years. And you'd see that um, in the Ezra, right? When Ezra was, they read the law and then the, pe the priests gave the sense of it. And I think that was to reflect that the language, like your old German and your Plotnitz, right? You know, high German and low German, right? So not to the same degree, but um, I think it simply represents the, the evolution of the language. So I have read up on it, um, not exhaustively, and it's, I find it's um, not being a Semitic language scholar, uh, the definition's a bit elusive, right? I mean, you've got... Uh, you can see it, I think, in the Hebrew text. There are portions of Daniel that's written in Syriac. Um, even Isaiah, I think the um, Rabshaki and them on, you know, speaking to the men on the wall, there are portions that are written in a different Semitic tongue. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, but the Syrian version of the New Testament is different from the 
the uh, Hebrew. So, did I kind of sort of answer a question? I mean, ultimately, I could just say I don't know for sure. Um, you could sort it off of that. Yeah, well, so am I. I'm looking at it like, why are they calling it Aramaic? And that's still not clear to me. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's um, again, you know, what's Yiddish, right? So Yiddish and Hebrew are two different languages. And Yiddish is some hybrid language that the Jews in Germany developed. And I don't know all the details there, but it's, Yiddish isn't Hebrew, not by a long shot. Um, but it wasn't German. It was the language of the Jews. So, I, you know, I will try and nail that down more. It's, one, it's been a while since I read it. And two, um, just why they make that distinction. It's because I've never read in one place a thorough, comprehensive delineation of the different languages. Um, I get it a bit piecemeal. So, I will uh, dig into that and get back to us all on it. But it's a Hebrew tongue. The, the shorthand of the scripture is just the Hebrew tongue. And, the, and Hebrew, right? Those were one of the three languages. Hebrew, uh, Greek, and Latin. And the New Testament would call it Hebrew. Um, the Greek text of the New Testament would call it Hebrew, not Aramaic. So um, it's... it's uh, Distinction that is derived by scholarly linguistic analysis. To be continued on that one. So we were at the Ezra, at, you know, um, collating the scriptures, right? So the historical that Sean walked us through. Um, how God revealed the creation account to Moses is unknown. Whether it was something that had been handed down from the time of Adam, or if, and it was known in Egypt and part of his education or whether it was revealed supernaturally in the mount. Um, yeah, I think all scholars agree that all of the prophetic writings of Scripture were in existence by the time of Ezra, including Malachi. And so Ezra was the final stage in the canon of the Old Testament. What we see in this is the hand of God providing his word piece by piece through the centuries, um, protecting it and recovering it after heathen attacks and even Jewish king attacks uh, and scattering it. He restored, edited, collated, established and distributed widely so it was finalized and in place, fully ready for use by Messiah and his church to whom and for whom it was written in the first place. So that's a historical for the Old Testament. And here I'm reviewing some of the things I've already said. For this task, God used both holy and unholy clergy to accomplish his will. And the most reasonable belief in an intelligent and almighty creator is that having purposed the scriptures for use, primarily by his son and his church, he ensured that they were kept through the ages of peril and delivered exactly as intended according to his will, safe and sound, even though not in their original form, just like he did when he preserved his messengers, such as Moses, as a baby in the bulrushes, and Messiah in their infancy, and then growing up, and so on. This is the nature of God. We know that none of the spurious writings are apocrypha, though they were known at the time. None of them were quoted by the Lord of the Apostles. Um, there is that puzzling quotation in Jude, 
but it's uncertain as to the origin of that. Uh, otherwise, it's simply the Old Testament canon that is quoted by the Lord and the Apostles. So that's the internal evidence, how the canonization process. And that points us to the New Testament. We see a similar pattern in the New Testament. Individual writings, piece by piece. Gospel, Acts, so you've got the historical books. Commentary, the epistles. And uh, prophecy, the revelation. The churches and the copies were destroyed and scattered through persecution. Not all. But there was this attack on the church uh, repeatedly. There was recognition by God's people of the inspired writings. Not all the churches right, had all the same books, but there was tremendous overlap. They all agreed on the Gospels. And you get some of these fringe ones. But there was, what was a percent? Like 80%, 90% agreement of all of the churches with some outliers here. Um, and leaving aside the cults. Is that right? In terms of the New Testament canon. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm always not wanting to overstate things. So tremendous. So some people say you know, they decided that all at the Council of Nicaea. But this was, it was established. It was common practice. The churches all tried to get as many of the books of the Bible, the New Testament, as they could. And they were all the same. They all, like they all had the epistles of Paul and, and so on. So this epistle was missing. Not everyone had this one. Not everyone had that one. But there was this uh, widespread commonality. Um, until there was the um, political opportunity to organize. Right, so some people talk about, well, you didn't have the whole Bible until hundreds of years later. But they, they won't address why. One, we did have it wasn't all formally encapsulated. Why is that? Because Christ's kingdom is in the hands of a persecuted people. It's not in the hands of a caliphate or a government with uh, legislative power. This is a word. We won't get talking on Islam and how they've uh, acquired their scriptures. That's for another time. But they did it with the might of the sword. In fact, it's, it's, it's coming to light now. It's very embarrassing for some, and they, they don't like to tell you. But the Islamic scriptures all arose under a period where they had military supremacy, right? They weren't persecuted. They, all of the places where they, um, the centers, the major city centers where Islam was, it continued uninterrupted. For hundreds of years. And yet they don't have a single um, codex, that's a complete version of the Quran, from within the first hundred years of Islam. They don't have a single one. And it's not because of the technology. Right? There are New Testament manuscripts, codices, from uh, 4th or 5th century. Because the technology, they're writing on vellum. <clears throat> they had now the, the wealth to write on a material that will last. Papyrus, am I saying that right? Papyrus? Papyrus? It sounds too much like papaya for me. Papyrus. Um, it doesn't last. The parts, right? It, it disintegrates with use and time. So there's a very basic technological reason why you're not going to have the originals. But with the introduction of vellum, and the, the you, you, it, it's, we've got them today. So Islam has no excuse for not having the original, but there isn't a single full Quran from within the first hundred years. 
and they weren't persecuted. Like they had the technology, they had the military and political might. Um, so that's another story. Uh, and that's not a big deal, except that they claim it's like preserved tablets in heaven and so on. So many of them do. So there, there are problems with these things, but I don't want to get distracted with that. With the, with the Christians, they were persecuted. They had the scriptures, and the persecutions were intended to destroy them and destroy the scriptures. Very common. And so they were constantly having to copy and, you know, they've got one, they've got to copy it and distribute it again because they were hunted. And there came a time of um, relief such that the established clergy could gather and conference and confer and organize. That was unprecedented until that time. It was fourth century. And they even had the sanction, the authority, the approval of the Roman emperor who confessed to be a Christian, Constantine. And, and so while at that time there was a fulfillment with the arising of Antichrist and the Bishop of Rome and the papacy, there was also a time where God used that to um, organize the scriptures and to preserve them and to have them distributed. It's very... Um, when you observe script, uh, history... Uh, with an understanding of the ways of God. This is very easy to observe. And again, he used both holy and unholy clergy. We've already seen him using Caiaphas, and that's pretty well the bottom of the barrel. So, any variations that may have been made as destroyed originals were reissued by the will of God were not like radical changes. It didn't change the deity of Christ or something like that. Um... They were just of the same nature as the kinds of things we read about in Jeremiah. It was reissued, or the difference between what you see in Exodus and Deuteronomy. There in the same volume, penned by Moses, you have the law expressed in different ways. And so none of that is in any way surprising or, or um, casting any doubt. God had already provided a translation of the original Hebrew scriptures into the international language of the Gentile world. What language was that? See who's still with us. During the time the apostles, the international language was, brother? Greek. So now, uh, God has done that already, and we have now a Latin uh, scripture distributed, and so on. I believe the legend, one of the legends about the Septuagint was that the, the, the king wanted it done. They, they, the Greek ruler at the time wanted the scriptures done into Greek. Um, certainly Constantine, Roman emperor, uh, you know, it's questionable whether he was a Christian or not. He certainly imposed himself too much in church proceedings. He wasn't a spiritual man. But out of it came the distribution of the word of God in Latin. Let's fast forward through that a few hundred years, several hundred years, maybe a thousand so, uh, for the last 400 years, what has been the international language of the world? Sorry, brother, it's not German. It's English, right? English. So you see where we're going with this, right? If we have observed God 
historically, having the scriptures translated and distributed in, from Hebrew into Greek, all in place so that we could have tremendous revivals through the heathen world by the preaching of anointed apostles and prophets, great revivals among the Gentiles who had the scriptures translated into their language and they received it as the word of God, right? Paul said, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is, it is in truth as the word of God. The great revivals in the English language. The common people had this book in their hand and they considered it the very word of God. You name them, right? English revivals under the Wesley, Whitfield, Finney, Sank, um, Sank he was a Sunday, Finney, Moody, Billy Sunday, Jonathan Goldfield. Like name, name your name your revivalists in the English world. And thousands upon thousands of people were pre were saved through the preaching of this English Bible as the very word of God. And it would seem that there was a great reduction in revivals among the English-speaking people that coincided with the um, diminishing of faith in this book as the Word of God. As people got more intellectual and wanted to cast doubt on this and wanted to re-translate it that way and, and question it, as people got more and more intellectual and heady and high-minded, we got fewer and fewer revivals among the English-speaking people. It's a historical fact amongst those nations as they became that way. Let's look at our English Bible. All right, so I'm not, a big, I'm not a biblical translation scholar expert. I don't want to pretend to be that at all. I'm an English-speaking person. God has said that he determined when we'd be born, the time of our Habitation, the bounds of our habitation, sorry. And uh, so what I want to do, that, that we might seek the Lord and feel after Him, if we might find Him. So what I want to do is search out now, has God provided His Word in my language? And then I want to receive that Word, not correct it or doubt it. Or, is that reasonable? We've seen how God has worked inspiration, transmission, and translation. Now I'm looking to see if there's a similar pattern for English. I've seen the translation into Greek and the wide distribution. We've seen that the rendering in Greek has noticeably different phraseology from the rendering in Hebrew. Right? We've seen that. And it was still inspired. Right? The apostles used it as the word of God. The spirit of God inspired the apostles. So, that they renders a little differently doesn't put me off. Let's see what we find. And we find that um, through the historical process that Sean's outlined already, um, men of God who translated the Bible into English, such as Wy Wycliffe and Tyndale, and he did it so that the common people would have the Bible in their tongue, they were persecuted, their works scattered and destroyed. I think Tyndale... I think the Roman Catholic Church dug up his body and burned his bones to punish him for being a heretic. Isn't that right? I mean, he's dead and gone, but just to make a statement, we're going to dig him up and burn him as a heretic. 
That's how persecuted these men were for um, having the Bible in their common. Was it Wycliffe or Tyndale who, who rebuked the Catholic monk and said, when I am done, a boy that follows the plow is going to know more of the scriptures than you. Was that Wycliffe or Tyndale? Nobody remembers? They wanted the common people to have the Bible in their language. And that is a legitimate argument for putting the, our English Bible in a language the common people can understand. No question. That is a legitimate thing. That's right in the tradition of it. The problem is, you've got a new one every week, almost. And they, they don't agree with each other, and it's just confusion. You should have one Bible, one church. Uh, the inspired Word of God. So that's a problem. Hundreds of years, several hundred years after the work was started, at the command of a king, one final common English Bible was issued throughout, for use throughout the world in what was then becoming and now is the universal, of the language, universal language of the world, the Word of God in English. And that's how I would identify what's the authorized version as God's Word in English. I can't tell you with confidence what God's Word is in Swahili or French, or any other language, I'll do my best if I need to. German, Dutch. But we're talking about the universal language of the Christian world as it then was. And that was English. And I think I can, with confidence by faith, affirm the King James Bible, the authorized version, as the inspired word of God for the English speaking people to be received, not doubted to be uh, obeyed, not corrected. And it would be that simple through this whole process. Let's read the translators. The purpose of the translators. This is their preface, not, not their dedication to you know, the most high and mighty Prince James, but they're writing to the readers as to what they were on about. And I'll break in because they wrote a long introduction. I've got it here in this Bible, a gift from our friend Tom uh, years ago. Let's see. And he got me out of love the best bound Bible he thought he could possibly find. It has a wide margin, and wide margins are meant for taking notes, and so I felt obliged to kind of use it that way. Um, and they wrote from page 9 to 26, 17 page epistle to the reader, called the translators to the reader, and so on. And they explain what they were about and why. And I'm just taking an excerpt, right? This is under the heading, the purpose of the translators with their number, furniture, etc. But it is high time to leave them and to show in brief what we proposed to ourselves and what course we held in this, our perusal and survey of the Bible. Remember, they were criticized for this work. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation. This is the translators of the King James Bible. I'm going to read that again. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one. Skip an insertion they hit. But to make a good one better. Or, listen, 
out of many good ones, because you had the Bishop's Bible, you had the Geneva Bible, you had several, out of many good ones. This was their view of the existing English Bibles. They didn't come along critically, say we need to make a bad one good. But a good one better. Or out of many good ones, listen, one principal good one. Not justly to be accepted against. That hath been our endeavor, that our mark. Do you understand? Today, they say, Our purpose was not only to make a good one better, but out of many good ones, one primary Bible for the English-speaking world. That has been our purpose. They're telling you right up there. We plan to make one Bible for the English-speaking world. And they're writing. That's their purpose. To that purpose, they were chosen. They're, sorry, to that purpose, there were many chosen that were greater in other men's eyes than in their own. And that sought the truth rather than their own praise. And they did not, and it goes on. And they came not, uh, not to learn, but as learned men. You know, <laughs> he goes on, you can read it at your leisure. Long, long, well, I told you, 17 page thing. I'm just going to break in. Yes, you know. None of these things. The work hath not been huddled up in 72 days. Right? Do you know what that's a reference to? That's the legend that the Septuagint was translated in 72 days. Right? 70 men translated the Hebrew Scriptures in 70 days. That's the legend. And so they're referring to that. None of these things. Right? The work hath not been huddled up in 72 days, but hath cost the workmen, as light as it seems, the pains of twice seven times 72 days and more. Right? More than 14 times 72 days. That's how long they've spent at it. Matters of such weight and consequence are to be speeded with maturity. For in a business of movement, a man feareth not the blame of convenient slackness. So, you know, the convoluted and um, uh, formal language of the day. Neither did we think much to consult the translators or commentators. Right? We didn't mind to consult others. Listen, Chaldee, Hebrew, Syrian, Greek, or Latin. No, nor Spanish, French, Italian, or Dutch. They consulted every available manuscript in every available language. Neither did we disdain to revise that which we had done and to bring back to the anvil that which we had hammered. But having and using as great helps as were needful and fearing no reproach for slowness, nor coveting praise for expedition. Listen. We have at length. Through the good hand of the Lord upon us. Brought the work to pass that you see. They believed that the hand of God was upon them in their translation. Inspired translation. Is what they believed. They set out. To have one Bible for the English speaking world. They spent as long as it took 
revised it as thoroughly as they could, and they consulted every language available to them in an age where they could speak Hebrew and other languages from their infancy. And they believed that God had helped. That's your English Bible, yes. When was this? This was written at the time the King James Bible was published in 1611. It might have been 1610, the publication date, but you know, that time, right? And so, I would submit that God has confirmed this Bible by signs and wonders of every sort in every revival in the English-speaking world for 400 years. That we can have complete confidence in it through the historical process that we have heard about through Sean's teaching. Through examining the um, scriptural testimony concerning the ways of God. By faith, by uh, analyzing the historical um, evidence, God moving, right down to the book you're holding in your hand that you can Right. You can say with confidence to men and to devils, it is written. Thus saith the Lord. It's the most reasonable belief concerning the scriptures. And not be moved to, to undermine this text or that. Where to from here in the modern... Any questions? Any comments at this point? Yes, brother. A few. Yes, go ahead. Um, uh, how do you view uh, languages itself, like uh, the building of the Tower of Babel? Yes. And God gave languages there. Was that a curse upon the people, or was that, how do you view it? So the question is, I've been asked to repeat the question for those listening through a recording or in the parking lot or what have you. Um, with God creating multiple languages at the Tower of Babel, was that a curse, or what was that? How do we view that? I understand you. Well, I, I see that as uh, a blessing from God by hindering people from being successful in an evil pursuit. And that pursuit was antichrist and idolatry to the city of man. Let us build us a tower, reach up to heaven and a name that would be established. They wanted to establish a kingdom among men um, that would exclude God. And that would be a very spiritually destructive purpose. Satan would end up being their Lord. And God, in his mercy, confounded them so that they couldn't cooperate collaborative together. So they were scattered into smaller groups. And, that, and they left off that work. So I wouldn't see it as a curse. You could argue that it was a punishment. But it really was intended as blessing. Because what I, was, I used to view it, I think, as it really was. But I have changed my mind. Years, um, but then it made me think. Like, um, so God created the languages, and it would seem to me reasonable that He would bring salvation to the peoples of those languages in years to come. Yes. So the, again, the, the comment is that um, God created those languages, and it would seem reasonable to believe that God would bring His message to the people in those languages in the years to come. Yes, I agree with you, and that we would expect that. He's up to the task, that it would be done as he intended, even though he uses frail human flesh. He has always used frail human flesh. Isaiah speaking, thus saith the Lord, was a redeemed sinner. Yes? 
the other thought too was like, so these are my thoughts, I'm not saying it's true or wrong, but so if let's say all these languages came about, the original one that they kept speaking was the one that God kept speaking, whatever it was, from Adam's from Adam's time to Babel. Uh, let's say that was Hebrew. Uh, I don't know how to think about that, but to me, it would be like uh, with that. Uh, so, kind of like the Jew, salvation was the Jew first, and then God revealed to Peter the unclean animals. I don't know if that's a thought that you've ever had. Like So, same with languages. They were not possibly, I don't know if this is a right view or not, but where, okay, so that was the first language, possibly the right language at first, but then kind of like God looked at the Gentile as unclean, and God said, don't call them unclean anymore. Same with languages, where now that was the original, but now God is, it's all inclusive now. We're all now, not unclean or common. Okay. I don't know. All right, so the, the speculative comment is, to try and summarize it, um, is that there was an original language at the Tower of Babel that everyone was spoke, spoke. Perhaps that was Hebrew and that continued. Uh, I'm doubtful, but um, I'm just repeating what you've said. And then there was all these other Gentile languages, and like they were unclean and the heathen, at the time when the gospel was now revealed and goes into the Gentile world, in the same way that the Gentiles were no longer excluded as unclean but redeemed, so their languages are also now included. And that would bear out, you know, there's going to be every people, every kindred, nation, and tongue, right? All praising the Lamb. Have I got you correctly? Um, the only quibble I would have is that it's possible that the original language from Adam may have been lost at the Tower of Babel, and everybody had some variation. That cannot be known with certainty. And I, I, I'm doubtful that uh, Abraham's language <clears throat> was the original. I mean, he's coming from Ur of the Chaldees. I have no way of knowing. Certainly, I think Babylon, modern-day Iraq, is considered the cradle of civilization. So it's possible that there was some original Chaldean language that was the original. But I suspect that with the passage of time that it has changed so substantially that we wouldn't recognize it. That'd be my thought. But you could, I can't say, no, you're wrong, for sure. Well, you already mentioned that Hebrew, even Hebrew itself has changed. Well, every language morphs over time, right, with uh, popular use and popular misuse. <clears throat> All right, so we've talked about widespread illiteracy, poor language education amongst some, cause them to have much difficulty understanding the common Bible, even amongst their own. Uh, what to do? What do we do about the fact that some people say they can't understand the King James? One of the things I keep in mind is that the Bible was written for believers. Paul's letters. Somebody, I remember an old man once saying to me, uh, he was relaying a story. Somebody said, uh, a non-believer said, I, I can't understand the Bible. And he said, that's what you get for reading someone else's mail. It's not written to you, it's written to believers. And you're an unbeliever, that's why you can't understand it. It's a bit harsh, maybe a bit cold. But it does make a point that the Bible's written for the church, first of all, and we haven't got to dumb it down for the unbeliever. The unbeliever needs to get saved, get filled with the Spirit, have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, have their eyes open, and then maybe that'll go a long way to help them understand the Bible. But even with that, there are language issues. Right? We don't all have the same education. High German, you know. I'm not even GSL. I've, I've got no German. 
I'm NGL, no German language. Uh, that's just how I was raised. I'm lost. Some of the jokes and everything, you know, I need an interpreter for it. It goes over my head. Um, I would submit that uh, solutions to problems understanding the Bible should be ch church solutions, not world solutions. So we should talk amongst ourselves. We should um, encourage Bible literacy among ourselves. You know me, I've promoted getting a good English dictionary, the OED. I always encourage that. So we can all understand the Bible. We can all share together. We all have equal access. We don't want a clergy class and a layman class. We want to have every brother, every sister with access to the Word of God and to be able to uh, contribute. <clears throat> Christ and the apostles quoted interpretively. So paraphrasing to aid understanding is not wrong. So you can read the text and then you can put it in modern language. That's a job whenever you're expounding the Word. Um, it's not a new problem. We mentioned uh, Nehemiah. Ezra did that, right? They, had, they, they read the scriptures and then the priests kind of interpreted it for people because the literacy was lower. Um, <clears throat> so proper teaching should help us understand our Bible. What about modern English translations? What do we think? NIV. Uh, meant to bring them all. Oh, dear. Meant to bring, I was going to bring the NIV, New American Standard, uh, just to read some common differences. <clears throat> Why not use a modern English version? Is it right? Is it wrong? What do we think? NASB, NIV. I'm a joke, you know, kind of cold maybe, but uh, what's the NIV, Dad? It's the non inspired version. Kind of cold. Some lovely Christian people that no doubt more spiritual than me would maybe take offense at that, but I just mean it in fun. My, my <coughs> personal view is I just, when I heard that they, uh, so to get a, what do you call it? Kind of, yeah, copyright. Or a copyright, yeah. you have to change 10%. Yes, to get a copyright you have to change the original 10% in terms of words. So they actually did that to make money. Well, to, or to get the legal rights to it, yeah. yeah. And I just felt like, no, I, can't, I can't do that. Even the New King James. That. Yeah, even the New King James. To get a copyright, or you have to change 10% of the words, just because. Yeah, minimum. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's not a new work. Unless they've changed that standard, but I believe that used to be a standard. Yeah, so that is a problem. Money-making thing. Um... Here's, here's what I would suggest. If the purpose of a new translation is to aid understanding and help to understand your King James, your authorized version, then it's fine. And to the degree that they faithfully do that, they're useful. Uh, in other words, as an aid to reading that one principle Bible that God has given to the universal empires in the English world. So, in other words, you want to use a modern version to help you understand your old King James, that's fine. But the problem is that's not their only purpose, right? They want to know their only premise. They believe, oh, this Bible's got lots of problems, we're going to fix them all. And that, I believe, was presumptuous and misguided at best. And that some of those changes are similar to the kinds of changes that Satan made in the garden, the serpent made. And so... When they do that, I think they should be rejected. 
People can be well-meaning but using the devil. And reject the words of Satan but love people. So anything that works against receiving God's word with meekness or causes one to doubt that word is something of Satan, not of God. Some modern versions. I forgot to bring these modern versions. I have a bunch of them. <clears throat> One of, uh, uh, to me, a humorous message, or, or memory or anecdote happened with some friends. They came to me. We were at a, a boys' camp, a Christian Service Brigade, Camp Puri. Remember that, Matthew? And uh, some of us were there. <clears throat> And my friends came to me and said, Martin, where's that verb? Where's that verse in Proverbs? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You know that verse? It's a pretty important verse. It's a well-known verse. It talks about the heart being, right? As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the king says, it's Proverbs. So yeah, that's what he thought. Can't find it. Well, let's look. He said, yeah, right here is in chapter 23. Really, what verse? Well, right here in verse... Six, eat, not thou, eat, not, eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. And the man looked at him. And he read his version. And I can't quote it all, but he said, uh, <clears throat> don't, you know, don't desire the bread of him that is covetous or something. For he is the kind of person that is always thinking about the cost. That's their version of as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. He is the kind of person that is always thinking about the cost. So changed. And the man stared in bewilderment. He was obviously raised on the King James. And it's like he came home and his house was gone. And he, sure, I mean, you know, he was just bewildered. They'd so changed the power of the verse. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. There are so many texts like that. Um, <clears throat> that... Uh, the, the changes have been done um, possibly with very noble intentions I just can't remember them more oh yes for the love of money is the root of all evil right you know that one First Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil is how it's been rephrased because look you know this Sin, that sin, that's not caused by the love of money. Well, <laughs> the scripture doesn't say the love of money causes all sin. It says it's the root of all evil, evil being the evil circumstances in the world. And the root is something that provides food to the tree. The root doesn't cause the tree. The root feeds the tree. And so, yes, every evil amongst human civilization is fed and perpetuated through the love of money. That's a fact. And so there's no need for you to misunderstand the text and change it to try and help God. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Is not what the apostle was saying. But so they, they change these kinds of texts, right? Oh, and good as new. Ay, ay, ay. I don't have a copy of that one. The Archbishop of Canterbury at the time Rowan Campbell, I believe. I don't have his name. Rowan. I don't know if that's his first name or last name. Archbishop Rowan. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, 
to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. And I'm going to quote sort of from memory. Now some of you are saying that celibacy, uh, you know, is, is um, uh, your inquiry about celibacy. That is not good. To avoid frustration, let everyone have their own partner. Really opens it up for all sorts of variations. Doesn't say let every man have his own wife. So to avoid frustration, let everyone have his own partner. Doesn't even specify, not only does it not specify male or female, doesn't even specify human. <laughs> There's lots we could say. This is part of the problem. And now, Arch, now this is the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the equivalent of the Pope in the Anglican Church. They don't really have the equivalent of a Pope. It's the highest ranking clergyman in the Anglican denomination. He commended this as the most authentic translation of the New Testament in English. May it spread with epidemic profusion. I'm going back about 20 odd years. What's that? Good as new? As a version, I hope it died on the vine. I haven't heard much about it. But this is the kind of end game you end up with when you open the door to everybody to cry and update it. All right? Um, 1 Timothy 3.16, which passage I had almost forgotten this morning and tacked it in on the end. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into, into glory. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He, w- he appeared in a body, or it appeared in a body. Not God. They change it. See. Based on speculation. These are the kinds of things that you end up with in pretty well all your modern translations because of their approach that they've got to fix the the text. Now I can tell you the specific technical issues that led them to that. But I I believe ultimately they're misguided, however well-intentioned, by Satan. I don't suppose you'd be interested in the technical issues behind it. Um, it has to do with the Greek text and it has to do with the fact that it was common in the Greek text to use a short form for um, specific word and so the, the short form for God was used there but without two horizontal strokes you wouldn't know that that was the short form for God it would mean a different word a preposition I believe. And because this is a hundreds of years old manuscript and it quite worn, it was very difficult to discern if those horizontal lines were there. And somebody, to refresh it, put the lines in at a later time. Still hundreds of years previously. And so modern textual critics, instead of concluding that a scribe who knew what the text said was refreshing a worn out manuscript, they claimed that a scribe was altering the manuscript and it should be a preposition instead of the word God. And so they, and they've made that claim without any proof. There is no 
objective proof on that specific reading one way or the other because it's worn. So it's, there's no way of knowing scientifically whether the line that delineates it as God was there in the original or not. And the King James translators, based on the Hebrew, the Chaldee, <laughs> the Greek, the Latin, the Dutch, the Spanish, and every other, the lectionaries, every commentary, all the ancient writings, concluded, rightfully, in my opinion, that yes, it was obviously the shorthand. And they translated it that way. Your modern textual critic, with zero proof to the contrary, decided it was a preposition. Yeah, he appeared in a body, I think. He appeared in a body. Which is a very Gnostic, it opens the door for a very Gnostic kind of notion. This is the kind of thing that they do. And now, you know, we're losing everybody. It's very technical and whoa, we're lost, right? We're talking Greek and dashes and so on. So, and, and of course, you know, removing things like the woman taken in adultery. Uh, instead of looking at why that may have been cut out of some manuscripts and somebody later returning it, some claim it's added on. The ending from, I think, Mark 16, verse 9 to the end. And all of these things are removed from modern versions. Um, it seems God's deliberately taken away all the originals. We don't have the original tablets of stone. We don't have the original Old Testament. We don't, have the orig we don't even have the original manuscript of the King James. That handwritten copy was, uh, manuscript was lost. And I can only conclude that Christians would be prone to idolatry. Just like the serpent that Moses had lifted up had become an idol. I would encourage us to heed the warnings of scripture. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6. Revelation 22, 18 to 19. To not add or take away from the word of God. Uh, what about other languages? What's the word of God in Hindi and so on? That's not my responsibility to figure that out. I'll leave that to those Christians. To search that out for themselves. Some languages may have their canon. Some other languages don't even. They've never even heard the gospel. So not every language gets the same treatment at the same time. But with the English language, we can safely say, Thus saith the Lord. Amen? That's the thing. Um, summary and review. The church needs the inspired word and the Holy Spirit, re relying on both and not pitting one against the other. I would submit the church, any Christian church, needs to be of one mind concerning what books are the scriptures and what those books say. Jesus and the scriptures are known primarily through faith and not through scholarship. Right? Most Christians are not educated in the historical facts. Right? Probably all of us would fail an exam on, on all of that. You know, uh, what's the name of the first historian outside of the Bible to mention Jesus Christ? What's that? No. 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 I forget the names. I was just reading about them. Two historians arguing in about 50 AD about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they were unbelievers. 
But yeah, I mean, I don't even remember their names. Now I was reading about them in the last month. <clears throat> when you preach Christ, there is in people who believe in a creator and who long to be freed from their sins an intuitive recognition of the truth of the gospel when they hear it. It's by faith. Not by education where you go through hermeneutics and apologetics and historical textual criticism and you read about Josephus, you know, and Tacitus and Pliny and Livy and Suetonius and study hermeneutics and apologetics and after 20 years of university education you're finally educated enough to know that yes, Jesus and Nazareth was a historical figure and that all of the evidence points to his literal death and an empty tomb and in a court of law the most reasonable explanation is that by some miracle he was raised from the dead. Like that's really literally what all the historical evidence does combine to show and it'll just take you maybe six or ten, twelve years of university study to get all of that down pat and then you can be saved. Or you just recognize that you are a sinner that needs to be saved. And it's fulfilled. As soon as they hear, they shall be obedient. So, I would submit that we can... And this was you, right, brother? You just recognized through your own private reading that this was a word. Isn't that right? The same way you recognize Jesus. Yeah. So, that's what I would submit. Is that we would know these things by faith. Listen, let's walk in love. And let's not treat brethren who love their NIV as enemies, their brethren. And uh, <clears throat> let's not look down on such. But let's encourage everyone to believe in the scriptures as the word of God. <clears throat> All doctrine is derived from scripture. And the scriptures are inspired in their giving, their copying, and their translation. The devil actively opposes the word of God by subtle changes, direct contradiction, causing confusion and doubt, and attempts to destroy the scriptures entirely. These are just for summarizing. The scriptures remain dynamic for centuries, but come to a closed canon, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I would submit translations as well. They weren't constantly upgrading the, the Septuagint and so on. God uses holy men to speak primarily, but he includes unholy clergy and kings in the giving of his word. We've seen that. God oversees his word through history. The idea is that only the originals are inspired and translations are not inspired contradict both scripture and a faithful understanding of history. Each prominent language in history is seen to be given one principal Bible by God. Our English Bible was given to us through the hand of God and confirmed by signs and wonders in revivals over centuries. Believers ought to receive the word in meekness, not doubt, criticize and correct it. Be wise and judicious in using modern aids to help you understand our common English Bible. Don't be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ, but say boldly to men and devils, it is written... Have faith in God, believe his word. As the prophet said, so shall you be established, and so shall you prosper. I hope that our survey of the scriptures, as foundational to our faith, has been profitable for us. I know we probably don't retain it 
Paul, some of us make notes. But the summary point that we have walked through, historically and biblically, is that we have, by the providence of God, the reliable Holy Scriptures uh, on which to feed our hearts and through which we can know God deeply. Amen. Any questions or commentary? Brother Jake, do you understand and commit us to the Lord in prayer?